From WNET in New York, welcome to WNET Up Next. I'm Tom Stewart. At Up Next, we like to take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and to help you get to know some of the people who create our programs. This year, we're celebrating the 30th season of American Masters on PBS. This unique series specializes in films showcasing the best and the brightest of our culture. It's been the winner of 28 Emmy Awards, 12 Peabody's, an Oscar, three Grammys, and many other honors. A couple of years ago, Michael Cantor became its executive producer. Prior to taking that role, Michael has enjoyed a very successful career as a filmmaker, producing several multi-part series for PBS and other networks, including the Emmy Award-winning Broadway The American Musical, Make Em Laugh, The Funny Business of America, and Broadway Musicals A Jewish Legacy, winner of the 2014 Peabody Award, just to name a few of his projects. Michael, it's great to have you here at Up Next. Thank you so much. Now, I know you began as a theater student, uh, studied theater and directing, and how did that all lead into a filmmaking career? Well, wh when I finished graduate school with an MFA as a theater director, I really admired the great directors who had done both theater and films, Sergei Eisenstein, Orson Welles, Mike Nichols, and thought, that's the path I want to go on. And so while I was struggling to make a living in theater in New York, a friend of mine had just uh, formed his own company and was about to make a film with Ken Burns. It was uh, Steve Ives who was working with Ken on an American experience on Charles Lindbergh. Mm -hmm. And I sort of got pulled under what I call the Ken Burns umbrella. And here I am today now, way too many years later, in documentaries. And I don't work in theater anymore. But there's always a future. <laughs> don't, don't, this, is not the last, this is not the last stop. In terms of your inspirations, you mentioned some of them. But who are some of the other people who have really uh, affected what you wanted to do as a filmmaker? That's a really good question. I mean, I, again, I came up working closely with Ken and his brother Rick Burns, and their kind of meticulous craftsmanship, their desire for every syllable of narration to be carefully phrased and every idea to be parsed uh, really stuck with me, that they would take longer than normal. I like to joke that people say, how long should it take a documentary to be made? And if you can gestate a baby in nine months, you should be able to make a documentary. But inevitably, it takes a couple years. It could take longer. Uh, my Broadway series took nine years to make. And that type of craftsmanship, that kind of dedication, it shows up in what you're doing. And so uh, I just got hooked. Michael, what kind of criteria do you use when, when picking subject matter for a documentary? For me... I always wanted my work to serve as a sort of time machine. I always thought, if there was a Broadway show that happened decades before you were born, what if you could see that? Mm -hmm. What if you could go to the Ziegfeld Follies? What if you could have been in the studio with Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones? So that kind of thing was always driving me, that I think the best of documentary gives you a feeling that you're there, whether it's cinema verite, in which you're a, quote, fly on the wall, or whether it's a historical documentary where the, the sounds of the era and the, the people talking sort of take you back to that moment. And again, coming out of uh, these multi-part series with Steve Ives and Ken Burns, I turned my eye toward Broadway because no one had ever 
tried to tell that mammoth story, and uh, nine years later, we had a show. And, and a great show. As an executive producer now, as opposed to an independent filmmaker, you're dealing with other filmmakers all the time. And how does that role change uh, your viewpoint or, or what you do? Now that I'm an executive producer, I'm no longer knocking on the door, I'm opening the door. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that once the door is open, anything's going to happen. <laughs> Hopefully not shutting the door in someone's face. Right. Uh, no, that, uh, <laughs> I find that documentaries like musical theater and like film production are the most collaborative of arts. I guess there are documentarians who go out and chronicle their own life experience, and that's a film, but that's not the kind of films I'm interested in. I'm interested in films that involve lots of folks working together. So it's exciting to me to be involved in a film about Sidney Lumet, the great uh, New York City film director, and Nancy Bursky and Martin Scorsese and all these great talents have brought their critical eyes to bear on that subject. Here, the Mike Nichols film that we have uh, coming up, Julian Schlossberg, who knew Mike Nichols for 40 years, and Elaine May, who was Nichols' comedy partner, are pouring their hearts into the film. So being a part of those teams is as exciting to me as it was leading my own team. And I think that here, uh, again, the sort of legitimacy that those close associations bring to subjects differs from a lot of documentaries that we see in in other venues and cable. I think it's always been the the forefront of American Masters. There's a there's a level of of excellence that that's always there. Well, I always ask people. I say, okay, why is the subject important to you know profile? But also, why are you the perfect person to tell this story? Mm-hmm. So hopefully, we find a perfect match between not only really dynamic and interesting um, people to profile, but filmmakers who have a unique insight into that story. I was saying that American Masters, this is the 30th season on public television, which is really kind of an amazing run. Uh, any specific highlights for you? I, I know the films that you've, you've made, a film on Quincy Jones, uh, and to mention that one, but what, what do you think overall the series has meant to public television and, and to our culture? Really? Well, yeah, I cut my teeth kind of um, on filmmaking with the Quincy Jones film. I'd made a film on Quincy for a cable network, not to be mentioned. <laughs> and, um, and then Susan Lacey, Quincy had decided a few years later to write his autobiography and Susan decided that was the perfect moment. Susan Lacey, the mm-hmm. founder and then executive um, producer of the series, decided that was a good moment to do a profile of Quincy. And, and I always thought, boy, Susan has the best job in the world. <laughs> she gets to mix and mingle with all these fascinating people and their stories and figuring out how to tell those stories. And that was in 2001, which is when it aired. And um, I feel lucky to be where I am now. Arriving here at WNET in 2014, I realized there is this large archive of material, principally interviews, that WNET owns of people like Ray Charles and Quincy Jones and... David Geffen and uh, Stephen Sondheim and all these amazing cultural leaders. These tapes right now sit in storage. Mm -hmm. 
collecting dust. And we've applied to the National Endowment of the Arts, who granted us a, a, um, some funds to digitize those. And our goal is to ultimately put them on the web so that students and filmmakers and anyone who's interested can access them quickly. Um, my that would be an incredible resource. I mean, unfortunately, they're not making any more Ray Charles. And I think being able to share his perspective on the world is really valuable. And so that's one of the, that's how I feel about uh, this incredible archive. Now, you've already touched on Mike Nichols. I know that the, the first of the season is Mike Nichols. Can you share with us a little bit more about that film? So the Mike Nichols film came about, A, trained as a theater director, I always admired Mike Nichols. I think everyone in uh, showbiz does. He was iconoclastic without being an auteur i.e. he didn't have a particular style. He's, his style suited the material, but mm -hmm. his material always ranged from, from dark comedies to, um, to other dark comedies. No. <laughs> uh, but, but, but humor was always there. Yeah, yeah humor was humor. always there. Meryl Streep points out that he could find humor, you know, in, amidst the AIDS crisis in Angels in America, and that's a, it's a very rare director who can bring that that sort of uh, out of the material. And, he, of course, he passed away roughly a year ago, but Julian Schlossberg, this friend of his, had a remarkable interview with him, and we decided to use that interview as the basis for a documentary. And we reached out to his various colleagues and friends and interviewed them for the, for the film. And again, I'm thrilled that those interviews will have a home in our digital kind of archive as well. So you'll be able to hear things that were never part of the program if you come visit us. Yeah. But I was thinking, you know, we can spend a very lovely uh, winter with Friday nights with American Masters this year uh, because the, the following month, another great artist who, who passed away last year, B.B. King. How did that come about? We were interested in telling B.B. King's story before he passed away, and thankfully the filmmaker, John Brewer, who's a, a British fellow, the Brits seem obsessed with American roots music, a roots music in particular and the blues, and John Brewer had been following B.B. King around for years, had all this, this great material. B.B. King is so influential. I mean, here's a guy, you kind of see the history of America in his own story, Someone who starts out picking cotton and driving a tractor and who picks up the guitar and kind of changes musical history. So when you hear B.B. King play the blues, his own unique form of the blues, you know you're getting the real deal. Pretty darn authentic. <laughs> he toured, I don't know, 320 days of the year. And up until the very end of his life. Really. Yeah. And... Um, and I really think for, for both people who loved him and people who, you know, my kids don't really know B.B. King, it, it'll be a, a wonderful way to, um, to hear and feel him. And, of course, there's another great uh, musical king who's uh, following on B.B. King's uh, heels, uh, who has really had sort of a renaissance. Now, speaking of Carol King, the last couple of years with her show on Broadway, this film, it's amazing. It's like 
everybody knows who Carol King is who'd never heard of her before. Carol King was just honored by President Obama, and when Aretha Franklin sang Natural Woman, a song that Carol wrote with her then-husband, uh, Jerry Goffin, it trended on, on social media. So Carol King is right at the heart of uh, a lot of stuff going on. Her career span is incredible. I mean, her songs were covered by the Beatles, people like Aretha Franklin. Um, and then when she sort of brought her own voice to bear with Tapestry and, and other uh, albums... Every woman I know of a certain age has a copy of the Tapestry album. <laughs> no and question. men, too, and that's just uh, No, that's just no fun, question. It's a really strong film that reacquaints you with her songs but gives you insight into how she fought off an abusive relationship and where she drew her inspiration. She still writes songs? Uh, you know, I don't think she's terribly active writing songs right now, but she still performs. But she's very selective as to when she performs. She, of course, joins her pal James Taylor occasionally. Yes, here on public television. Yeah. A very successful series of uh, shows that they've done. And, of course, if you want to get back in uh, music to a, a slightly earlier generation than Carol King, uh, you have someone that you're referring to as the the father of rock and roll, in, in a way, uh, Mr. Fats Domino. I didn't realize how important Fats Domino and his long-term partner Dave Bartholomew were to the evolution of rock and roll. We think of Bill Haley and the Comets and Elvis and so on. But our film examines the big beat kind of boogie-woogie sound that emerges from New Orleans and that's kind of closer to the Jerry Lee Lewis um, piano-pounding thing that informs early rock and roll. I mean, I don't have the, the numbers in my head, but he's hugely successful. I think Blueberry Hill and some of his other major songs outsell all the other big pop stars of the time. That's amazing. So his influence is certainly really important. His moment sort of passes by the time you get to the late 60s um, and you get uh, all sorts of amplified rock. But um, I think I think anyone who watches any of this film is going to revisit things from their own childhood and f get a sense of how rock and roll emerged. Right. Very interesting to me that still living, still uh, a force in country music is Loretta Lynn, and uh, she has uh, sat down for an American Masters. I love music in documentaries. I just think it's the perfect driver. You have a great story, but when there's musical performance going on, it's kind of the uh, spoonful of sugar that takes the story along with it in a, in a wonderful way. And the Loretta Lynn story is exactly that. She's in the 60s singing about the pill. She's singing about standing up for women's rights and... Um, and telling that other woman that you ain't woman enough to take my man. <laughs> and she's the first lady of country music, and she deserves an America. She, she's still out there singing, writing, performing with, with hip young artists like Jack White, and it's a great film that comes in March of this year. Excellent, excellent. And another great female singer of, uh, again, uh, a limited, unfortunately, a very limited life, uh, Janis Joplin. Uh, whom you're featuring in May, I believe. Janis Joplin, Little Girl Blue, is a film by Amy Berg, produced by the noted documentary uh, filmmaker Alex Gibney. Oh. 
And he is uh, an Oscar winner. He's, uh, he's on the short list this year for his Scientology film. He's one of the busiest documentary filmmakers alive. And it, it took a number of years to come together, but it's a powerhouse film. And it interviews the people who knew Janice Joplin very well, who partied with her, who loved her, who were on the road with her, who filmed her. And it's, ve- it's a very intimate and moving story about this moment where folk songs by Odetta and others turn into rock mm-hmm. and wailing rock and, and, and Janice channels this energy. That film is in theaters now, and I'm, it's doing gangbuster business, and I can't wait for the PBS audience to see it. And to c- complete our little musical suite, we have uh, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Johnny Cash, and Waylon Jennings, The Highwaymen. The Highwaymen were my initial introduction to country music. I grew up in the Northeast and really didn't listen to a lot of Johnny Cash kind of stuff. And that was a, mon- a moment of monster hit for The Highwaymen. And it took me on my own journey into into listening to country music. So to see... That come back now will be really fun. And a couple of films that are going to be premiering very soon at the Sundance Film Festival uh, won't be on the air until the fall, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those because they promise to be uh, both in their very individual ways extremely exciting and compelling stories. Norman Lear. We think of Norman Lear. We think of an American. Uh, I was about to say an American family. <laughs> no, that's that's a, that's another filmmaker. Uh, Different kind all, of family. All, all in the family. Uh, Maud. All of those classic. I guess it was the seventies, really, that brought those on, which really were quite political, uh, screamingly funny, but. Today we speak about appointment viewing. I don't know how much appointment viewing is left, but All in the Family on a Saturday night at 8 was appointment viewing for a huge part of this world that we live in. Norman Lear said things, wrote things that were said on television that couldn't be said today. Yes. He, he broke the mold. He included bigoted characters who were both bigoted but beloved by audiences. And... Um, Television was never the same after his string of of monster hits in the mid-70s. But Norman, at a certain point, having done everything you could do in television, said, you know what, I need to expand my sphere. And Norman bought a copy of the Declaration of Independence and toured it to schools and museums. I mean, he... Norman is most concerned about freedom of speech. I think that's what defines him. And I think through this film in which you, it's a very intimate film and you learn about his, his childhood, um, his father was uh, in jail for some stint and uh, he had a rough upbringing, but it all fed into this desire to write about the human experience in a funny way. And he continues. I, I know that he has a series about old people that he wants to get on the air. He has remakes of a number of his series that are being are being considered and, and bought as we speak. 
Uh, at 93, he jokes that he gets a standing ovation to walk across the stage just because he can walk. But he's as sharp and vital as ever. And, but very political in the, in the, in, in the sense of uh, bringing up issues and dealing with issues and being a spokesperson for things. He wants everyone to be able to have their say. He's not so much a partisan booster as a proponent of free speech, which really you have to admire. And I was thinking that so many of the that the people on American Masters that we've been talking about today are known at least in part for their voices, but no one had a voice like Maya Angelou. Oh my goodness. I had the privilege when I did my American Masters film on Quincy Jones of interviewing Maya Angelou. And I'll never forget it. She she commands attention, both through her voice, through her thoughts, through her words on the page and, and otherwise. And the film that we're now screening at Sundance, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise, which will come to public television likely later this year, is a powerful, powerful film that, um, that enables you to spend time and just to be in Maya Angelou's presence is moving. Just to, just to yeah, see her. I heard her, her speak once, and it's, it was very <laughs> spiritual, I must say. And again, it's born out of real hardship. I mean, I don't know how many listeners know about her story that um, she was mute for something like five years. It's all detailed in the Cage Bird Sings book. But um, she was sexually assaulted as a child, and then uh, the person who did it was killed. And she felt that in her child's mind that by telling the story of what had happened, she'd killed someone. Oh. So she found the power of words to be that strong. And so she, for five or six years, she just read voraciously. She never spoke and then when she came out of that period of mutism, she, she exploded with language. Amazing. So that will be on television in the fall. Yes, that we're, we're expecting sometime. PBS, of course, makes the schedule, but sometime in the fall. You said it takes a couple of years to do these things. What, what's down the road? Well, one project I'm very proud of that we received a National Endowment of Humanities grant for is Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, uh, I Gotta Be Me. Sammy lived many lives within his, his one life. Um, first, he was the first um, part of the first interracial kiss on television when he kissed Nancy Sinatra. He was the first African-American to be invited to sleep in the White House by Richard Nixon, of all people. Wow. So here's a fellow who has never had any formal schooling at all, who grew up um, hoofing it around the country, sleeping in bus stations and cars, scrambling after hours to find food when, you know, white establishments wouldn't let him and his father and um, Will Maston into uh, to a restaurant. And he becomes a major star. He becomes a key part of the Rat Pack. He takes on this role where he does a Broadway show, Golden Boy, mm -hmm. with an interracial relationship and he kisses a white woman on stage years before the loving versus virginia case that made interracial marriage this was 1964 acceptable. yeah 64 is golden boy mm -hmm. and um there are riots at the theaters so sammy takes all that in stride 
it's an amazing, compelling story about what what someone Norman Lear called the most talented entertainer of the 20th century. As so did Jerry a couple Lewis. of years away to see. So yeah, probably 2017. Mm -hmm. Not clear exactly when, but we're we're just digging in now. Very exciting. Anything else you can give us a little preview of? There's an Edgar Allan Poe film. Wow. That. Did you get him on camera? <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe, which we hope to air around Halloween of this year, is being done um, with a lot of reenactments, and I think it's going to be wonderfully spooky and creepy. Sounds, sounds swell, Michael. It's like you've had this incredible full plate. The uh, is, is this more American Masters this year than any time before? It just seems like there's an incredible output. There's a couple of extra shows this year. It's exciting. I think this is a great moment. I think the culture at large, theaters are entertaining limited runs of films like, you know, the Amy Winehouse film did, which isn't an American Masters, but it did extremely well. Our Janis Joplin film is doing well in theaters. We hope our Norman Lear film will. So it's not just on television that documentaries are being appreciated, but everywhere, online, in theaters. Um, so it's a good time to be doing what we do. And what's the biggest challenge? A lot of people in your position say financial, money, raising money. Well, I think that the way that documentaries are made is based on trust. If whoever it is, whether it's, you know, the butcher on the corner and you're making a film about, you know, his workshop or uh, Stevie Wonder, the subject has to trust the filmmakers. And I think... We're doing a good job at hopefully establishing trust with the people that we want to make films on. And then the tricky part is, as you point out, finding the financing. Because when you work with an artist whose music or films or what have you is well known, those are very commercially viable properties and people want their fair share. So it's complicated on a bunch of levels, but it's, it's all exciting. I, I love the challenges. I wanted to ask you, do you actually have a philosophy of storytelling? I don't hew to a philosophy, but I, I do think that documentaries now, um, at some level, can dispense with a chronological A to Z. That doesn't mean that's bad, but I think it's in today's world where information, you're multitasking, things come at you in different directions, it's easy to start a story with, you know, at Q and then go back to A and then go to B and jump over to R and sort of mix our, our alphabet up a little bit um, and, and ultimately have a very satisfying experience. What's the biggest joy for you in all of this? Boy, I think the biggest joy is you go to a screening with just a few hundred people, whether it's in Mesa, Arizona, where we did a screening of Pedro Guerrero, A Photographer's Journey, mm -hmm. or um, we're doing a screening for the Mike Nichols film. And you just see how important these stories are to people. You know, I'm very fond of this M Muriel Rukeyser quote, which says, the universe is not made of atoms, it's made of stories. And you realize when people get older, they have their group of stories. They tell the same stories, but it's the stories that define them. And I think the fact that we're telling such critically important stories, stories that have impacted almost everyone in our country in one way or another, it's a privilege. And when you, when you see those stories play out and you see the impact that they have, to me, that's very powerful. 
That's excellent. Michael, uh, this has been such a great pleasure having you here with us today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. I hope everybody watches American Masters, checks out our, our refurbished website. Excellent. And um, comes to our screenings. Absolutely. And uh, for those of us old-fashioned enough to actually watch it on TV. Oh, yeah. You know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're really looking forward to this great season of American Masters. Again, thanks. Thank you. And please join us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. And also share your thoughts with us at upnext at WNET.org. Tell your friends about us. And, of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart. Thanks for listening.